Hi, I'm Corey Chonsky, and welcome to my podcast, One House at a Time. As a former Naval officer, I'm proud and feel lucky that I was mentored to think about my post-military career and invest in real estate. That decision has helped me to create a level of security and wealth I didn't realize was possible. My mission is to help both those in and out of the military do the same. Each week, I will coach those in need around how to build wealth, as well as to interview some of the most successful folks and how they built their own financial freedom. Welcome to One House at a Time. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of One House at a Time. I'm your host, Corey Chonsky, and I have a very special guest here, uh, someone I actually served with during my time in the Navy, known him for a long time. Um, and he's transitioned from the Navy into real estate. He's now a real estate agent. And let's welcome Chris Kaiser to the One House at a Time episode. All right, Chris. Um, how about we jump right into it? Uh, how about we start with a little bit of your background? Tell us who you are, what you do, and your time in the okay. Navy. Uh, so originally from Mississippi and Tennessee. Uh, I claim Tennessee because it's a nicer place to be. And uh, joined the Navy in 1995, uh, enlisted as an electrician's mate on submarines, and did 15 years in submarines before going LDO. Um, and then as an LDO, I did two carriers, a sub-tender, and a new construction submarine. Um, and one of those carriers, the last one, was the one where I met you. So, and then transitioned to shore duty right before retirement, and then once I retired, uh, Jumped in with both feet into real, being a real estate agent. Um, I'd also started investing in real estate uh, back in 2004-2005 and then I spent 15 years making excuses as to why it was too hard to invest okay. because of the Navy. Uh, and then I met you and, and that's actually where, where we got talking about yeah, it, right? And then I met you and you kept asking me, hey, did you buy anything yet? So. Uh, I went from when when we met, I had two rentals, and then when we both left the ship, I had six. So. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so when you decided to transition from the Navy, what really drove you to becoming a real estate agent? So uh, single family is kind of my bread and butter. In fact, my entire rental portfolio is single family. Um, so I understand it in and out, and um, when I was looking at retiring from the Navy, I was questioning whether I wanted to do a 9-to-5 regular job, punching a time clock kind of situation, or if I wanted to kind of be the master of my own destiny. So um, about a year before I retired, I decided to get my license and um, do real estate full-time um, as an agent. So. Um, yeah, kind of following the, the footsteps of people like David Green where, you know, he got his license even though investing is what he wanted to do, he still jumped into the being an agent and, and made it work for him. Uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to do too. Yeah, before we continue down that track, let's go back to your portfolio when we met on the Harry S. Truman. Yeah. You said you went from two houses to six houses. Uh, can you kind of talk about the the jump that you made from basically going from two to six? What were some of the the time constraints of being in the Navy and trying to purchase, you know, investment properties while you know obviously dealing with the struggles of being on a you know a seagoing vessel 
and you know how how you worked through that and how you picked the properties and just that whole process you did while obviously being out to sea quite a bit. Yeah, um, so I'll go a little bit back further than that. During that 15-year period where I was making excuses, uh, I didn't just not do anything. I actually read a lot of books about real estate investing, uh, the majority of which were probably more motivational than functional. Um, and then Bigger Pockets came around, and I started following them read, and listening to their podcasts. And it was honestly a combination of reading the book uh, Long Distance Real Estate Investing by David Green and then having an accountability partner, as it were, with you uh, pinging on me on a regular basis. Um, and the Long Distance Real Estate Investing, I kind of took the, the principles of that book and applied it to you know being in the Navy, even though the properties I purchased weren't necessarily long distance being in the Navy on a seagoing vessel kind of made, made me distant from my investment area, uh, as opposed to the investment area being distant from me. Um, and, and, you know, I also spent a lot of time during that period crunching numbers and figuring out how to analyze deals. And it was a lot of analysis paralysis, uh, until I decided to finally stop worrying about it and do it. Yeah. So in order to kind of, you know, basically triple your portfolio over that, that small time frame, what, what did you look for in terms of your team? Who are you working with in order to kind of further build your portfolio given kind of, as I've said before, you know, being in the Navy, you are working at a distance, even if it's technically local. So, I mean, you obviously had to build a strong team. What were what were some of the team members you were looking for, and how did you kind of vet them? Um, so obviously, if you're buying real estate in an area remote to you, having someone on the ground to investigate the properties is key. Um, for instance, two of the two of the four I added during that time were actually in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and I had a an agent centric real estate or. A, investor-centric real estate agent that helped me out with that, uh, doing showings and videos and, um, you know, looking for issues. Um, and I actually found him, it was kind of a, a tactics that I had learned from bigger pockets where you kind of go on Zillow and look for the best real estate agent or real estate team in an area and then just con try to contact them. And I actually reached out to three or four different agents in that area and uh, this particular uh, team actually contacted me uh, and actually the the guy that reached out to me when we actually got on the phone it was him and the entire brokerage so not just him and a couple of people it was him and the entire brokerage that was sitting in the room when they were talking to me um, trying to get me on board with them being and they were actually technically the number two team in the area, so the number one team didn't even respond. <laughs> the number two team is the one that contacted me, and they had their whole team in the room when they were talking to me. Um, and they were, you know, any question I had, they were able to answer it. Um, they were able to, you know, give me ideas about how to make the relationship work, and it was just they were able to answer my questions in a, in a concise manner. And any question I had that they weren't able to answer, they got back to me right away. Um, very responsive, very, very technical. Um, and you know, they just, they struck me as a good team and 
I managed to take down two with them in South Carolina to add to my portfolio. So. Uh, do you still work with them today? Uh, I haven't in a little while because I haven't been looking in that area for a while. I've, I've been focusing mainly up here. Um, the guy that was actually my agent down there has since moved on, so he's doing um, mobile home flipping right now and is also looking at potentially expanding into mobile home parks. So he's, he's been doing yeah, less agent stuff and more investing stuff himself. So you're looking to be a partner with him on those those type of deals, or that's just kind of what he's up that's to? That's just today? what he's up to today. Uh, I, the main reason that we haven't done anything is just because I haven't been looking down there for anything new. Yeah, I mean, there there's typically a lot of deals available in any particular local market. You just have to really get to understand those different nuances of the neighborhoods and that local market in general in order to kind of determine what is the best area to kind of go after for for different investment yeah, properties. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, uh, I, I'm local uh, to, to your area as well. Um, to be transparent, uh, Chris, is act we, we've actually done deals together. Um, he's been my agent on a couple of deals. He's been investors on in some of my deals. Uh, you, you actually connected me to one of our uh, properties that we closed last year is a about a 50 unit apartment complex. Uh, we found that on auction and we're able to take yeah. that down. And uh, Chris was def definitely instrumental in that. He he did what that team did for him. They He went down there, he took a lot of videos. He kind of gave me a lot of background on where that property was and he really helped us kind of get that that property under contract and then obviously to the closing table uh, where we've done a lot of great things we brought over 40 units back on the on the market that were taken off the market for several years yeah. so um, a, lot of, a lot of good yeah, renovation so, on that property too i've been following it yeah definitely did a lot of work there so um when we were talking earlier you mentioned that you're kind of still working with retail um buyers as well as investment buyers can you tell us the kind of some of the differences that you see between working with those two different clientele uh, a lot of it has to do with emotions right so retail buyer clients are invested in how is this property going to make me feel living here as opposed to uh, investment clients who are invested in how is this property going to either cash flow or increase my bottom line, whether it's a fix and flip or a buy and hold, right? So um, there's a lot more, um, a lot more feeling that goes into retail buying as opposed to investor buying and selling for that matter. Um, you know, I've worked with uh, retail sellers as well as investment sellers and even in that aspect, it's different. Um, you know, retail sellers like to, you know, see what the, the neighbors are doing, keeping up with the Joneses as it were. And, uh, I've had seller clients that said, Hey, the house down the road sold for 450,000. Mine should too. And you have to rein them in and say, Hey, your house is a thousand square feet smaller. So no, it's not going to, you know, as opposed to an investor client who says, Hey, this house that I just flipped, uh, 
these are the comps that I see, which ones do you see, you know, and they, they're more reasonable when it comes to uh, evaluating things. So it's not always. Not always. Not always. No, there are investor clients <laughs> who are a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually saw an on-market portfolio that an investor client was trying to offload that was probably worth about half what he was asking for. Um, and yeah. Yeah, we're in a weird, weird time of the market where you have um, sellers who still feel like their their properties should sell for what they should have like eight to twelve oh, yeah. months ago. Um, and it's and I get it. It's one of those things that as I put, you know, if I'm looking to sell a property, I want to get the maximum value out of it. And sometimes that means that if you want the maximum value out of it, that may not necessarily sell it today, yeah. you know. It's one of those things that you can test the market, but understand that you may not get any any people that are interested in the property that at that price, given the current mm -hmm. rate markets. You may have to wait a year. You may have to wait two years. Or you, if you're really, you know, kind of out in left field with your valuation, you have you may have to wait several yeah. years. Um, yeah, we we were going after a property here locally. It was like 71 units, and the the guy had owned the property for about 10 years. So he had a, probably a ton of equity in it, but he was insistent. I want this amount for it. And it was probably two million, $2 million less than what he was going to get on the current market. And he didn't care. He's just like, fine, I'll wait till you're up to my number. And I'm like, that may be five or six okay. years from now, but it's, it's his property. He's able to do what he wants. He's just, he has a, you know, a future mindset, I guess, in his mind where, it's not today's markets, so. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, even as a, a retail buyer, um, if you buy a house to live in and then down the road decide to sell it and the market just doesn't support selling it at the moment, the worst thing you can do is to put it on the market anyway. And then ultimately, I mean, I have a, a good friend of mine, a colleague who bought a house in Charleston, South Carolina and then he moved two years later and he sold it and the market had taken a dip and he actually sold it as a short sale. Um, and now his VA entitlement is, is hurt because of it. Whereas that same house just sold last year for twice what he paid for it. You know, so, and, and I've had similar situations myself when I bought my first two in 04 and 05, started renting them out. The market took a dive in 07, 08, you know, all the way to 2012. And then, um, at one point I was upside down, even income wise, I was written for probably about $600 out of pocket on the two units combined. And I just stuck it out. Uh, if I had tried to sell them in 08, 09, I'd have sold them for 20% less than I paid for them. And right now they're worth twice what I paid for them. And see, that's, that's a similar story to what I hear from a lot of military people where uh, you know, they go and they try to purchase property wherever they, they move, which can be a good strategy. However, they don't necessarily understand a lot of the nuances that go into a property that you're going to purchase with the intent to then, you know, you could do a live-in flip or you, you're looking to do something where you turn it into a rental down the road. But they, they, they make poor assumptions and there's not a real evaluation going into that purchase of the property, which can put them in trouble down yeah, the road. Exactly. And it's one of those things that just you can't always assume the market's going to go up. It may be flat. It may be it may dip. 
generally over a long period of time, the market will usually go up, but that you may not be looking to hold the property that long. And in, in your situation, it looks like you decided to kind of eat a couple hundred bucks a month uh, until the, the market kind of righted yeah. itself. And then it put you in a position where you either were cash flowing or you now had equity in the property and could sell it. Yeah. And in all honesty, the amount of money I was spending out of pocket, um, that my renters weren't covering was actually going toward principal anyway. So it wasn't like it was disappearing. Um, yeah. So, and I could sell them today for twice what I paid for them and make a pretty nice profit, even considering over the last, so five, nine, 18 years, uh, they've been consistently cash flowing. So except for like a three year window when I was negative. Um, and you still hold those two properties today? I still hold them today. Those two properties will probably so what, be in uh, portfolio forever. Okay, so what do you do any sort of equity evaluation at any point on those properties? Are you, or is this just something like, hey, I really like that area. I really like what property is doing there, and I'm just going to hold them regardless. So the area is Charleston, South Carolina, and I don't know how much you follow that area, but the population growth there has been consistently above six percent. Um, for the last probably 15 years. Um, oh, you know, I know South yeah. Car Charleston, South Carolina. So, uh, for all the listeners out there, if you, uh, if you are part of the Navy nuclear program, you will get intimately familiar with the Charleston and Goose Creek, South Carolina areas. Yeah. Uh, so I spent, um, I want to say about six or seven years of my life down there. And Chris, I know, I know you've you've been down there several times as well. Yeah, my my wife is actually from there, so I'm I'm permanently tied to Charleston. <laughs> that's that's not that's a bad not, city to be permanently it's, tied to. It's definitely it's growing. Um, the infrastructure sometimes can't keep up, but they're they're making leaps and bounds on that too. Um, there's just so much going on down there; it's pretty crazy. So, I mean, that, that makes sense why you, you really like the area. Um, I mean, I really enjoy going to Charleston. Uh, it's been a while since I've been there. Um, one of the things that I did with my first rental uh, is I bought it up in Washington State is I was able to get in using my VA loan. I didn't put any money into it due to some seller credits um, and some negotiation stuff that we did up front. Um, and then we held that for a long time. I mean, we lived in it for a couple of years and then we moved to Washington DC, turned it into a rental, uh, a little bit different. Didn't have a whole lot of knowledge, uh, about what I was going to do, do with it on the back end or what it meant or how to actually evaluate a property. Um, but time was my friend there. Uh, we didn't really cash flow a lot, but eventually the, as we came out of the, you know, the housing downturn, you know, that that area started to appreciate. And we did a, you know, equity evaluation on it. It's like, okay, it's cash flowing now, but is this the best use of the equity that I have trapped yeah, in this okay. property? And it was something that we decided that, you know, we had created equity almost from nothing. Mm -hmm. And now we would be able to basically sell that property and go put that into better cash flowing, better appreciation. Not to say that we didn't get great appreciation there, but, um, being able to go put it into a value add property. Now you get your force oh, yeah. appreciation yeah. on that. And so that is ultimately what led us to go and sell that property and put that money to use. And I think in a much more effective way, um, 
is that something that you do with your other properties as opposed to the ones in Charleston since it, it kind of sounds like there's a little bit of emotion tied from that just because of your connection to Charleston. So um, actually um, when I added the four rentals during the time we served together, um, two of them were in Charleston and six months after I purchased them, I actually did a blanket mortgage refi on all four properties in South Carolina and wound up pulling $60,000 out in equity uh, across the four properties and actually lowering my monthly outgo on um, on mortgage by $500 a month. Um, and I used that $60,000 in equity to leverage into more property. So I actually, I actually pulled some equity out of the properties I still own down there um, in order to buy more. And then um, the ones I have up here, I have two up here, one in Portsmouth and one in Carrollton. And the one in Carrollton I'm actually selling now. I bought it for 52500 with a tenant in place who was happy where she was living. So I didn't do anything. She didn't ask for anything. Um, cash flowed that for the last two years. And now I'm listing it uh, on the market and currently have it under contract for 125500 having never done a thing to it. Uh, uh, I was going to ask, did you, did you do anything? It sounds like you yeah. didn't. And so that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fair. I mean, cash flowing and then appreciation without really putting any money into it. Um, go back to where you talked about the, the portfolio refinance. It sounds like that was kind of a modified Burr strategy. Could you kind of explain that a little bit in more detail? Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, so the first two that I owned down there, I had refinanced both of those previously just to lower interest rates. Um, you know, I purchased them as my primary residence had had a did a little house hacking, had a uh, a roommate that paid half my mortgage um, in both units, and then just rented them out, and then refinanced them down the road just to you know reduce interest rates. Or you know, one of them I had PMI on, I got rid of the PMI on it. Um, and then when I added the other two to the portfolio down there, I decided. If you could explain what what is PMI? Oh, could you explain PMI, that for the yeah, private mortgage insurance? Um, anytime you have a non-VA loan that is above eighty percent loan to value, a lot of times you'll have a private mortgage insurance, or in some cases it's called MIP mortgage insurance premium. Uh, just depends on how you pay it. Um, private mortgage insurance is paid as an extra fee, MIP, mortgage insurance premium is paid as an extra percentage of, so instead of like 5%, it'll be 5.2% for MIP. Um, and all that does is it covers the, it's an insurance for the bank against default on the party, on the part of the, the borrower. Um, so if I were to go for instance, stop paying my mortgage, and the, the mortgage company had to foreclose on me, and then potentially, you know, sold the home and sold it at a loss. The private mortgage insurance would cover that loss up to a certain amount. Um, and the reason VA doesn't have it is because VA has a funding fee, which is effectively paying for the private mortgage insurance up front. The VA itself covers the top 25% of the mortgage uh, for that. Yeah, and so uh, for the listeners out there, this is money that doesn't go towards your mortgage payment, towards a principal, covering interest. 
this is just a fee if you're not going to come in with at least 20% down payment. And so that is something that you need to take into account uh, that you're gonna have to pay on top of your principal and interest if you're coming to the table with less than 20%, unless you're a VA loan. And with the VA loan for that VA loan fee, you can actually roll that into your yeah. closing costs. And a lot of VA buyers don't actually know this, but if you actually bring some money down for a VA buyer, it actually lowers your funding fee as well. So anything less than 5%, it's like 3.5%. Uh, you know, it depends on if it's your first time or your second time. But, and then if you pay up to 5% you know, five to 9% or 5% to less than 10%, it's like 1.5%. And if you pay an, an extra five percent all the way up to ten percent, it lowers it down to one and a quarter. So, um, yeah. Yep. And so, it pays I mean, money to even that. for yeah, even for um, loans that are great, like the VA loan, it, it is beneficial to be able to come to the table with some money, um, just because it's one of those things that it, it you have to if you're looking to use say an FHA loan or a VA loan on the purchase of a property that you'll turn into a yes. rental property, you you need to make sure that you're, you're gonna be able to cover your debt service. And so that's part of the evaluation that you wanna do upfront. Even if you're gonna live in the property for a couple of years, you need to make sure that you're doing that evaluation, taking into account the expenses, mm -hmm. as well as that debt service to make sure you're cash flowing. So you don't wanna end up upside down, which is unfortunately I've seen with a lot of uh, military members when you have some sort of change in the market and all of a sudden the house isn't worth what it used to be. And that, that insurance premium isn't a small amount either. When I had it, it was $135 a month. Uh, and when I was able to get rid of it, I guess I, I paid to have an appraisal done that $500 saved me $135 a month. So it was well worth the, the cost benefit analysis was good uh, in that case. Uh, I was able to recoup that $500 appraisal fee in less than four months. Yeah, it's you can get rid of it. Um, it depends on your lender, obviously. Um, also through an appraisal or just you paying it down to get to that uh, percentage point that they're looking right. for. And a, another thing that a lot of people don't know is for FHA loans, if you pay less than 20% down, you could have private mortgage insurance for the life of the loan period. So good to know um, in talking to your mortgage yes. lender. So a lot of people are able to get out of it, but not not every time. So yeah, usually the only way to get out of private mortgage insurance on FHA is through refi with a different company. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you had some advice for new investors, um, being a real estate agent. What would your advice be to them when they are looking for a real estate agent to kind of help them jumpstart their real estate investing career? Um, so one is you want to find a real estate agent who is knowledgeable about investing. Um, not all real estate agents know about investing. Uh, a real estate agent who knows. But they will tell you they, they do. They will tell you they do because they want the business. Uh, but when you actually, you know, do a deep dive on what level of knowledge they have, it's not there. Um, you need an agent who understands how to um, 
you know, come up with after repair value, who even knows what after repair value means. Um, you know, I've talked to agents before, they're like, what is after repair value? And I was like, it's right there in the word, you know. Um, Could you give a, a quick definition of after so repair after value? So after repair value is a value based on comparative sales in the neighborhood of what the house would be worth if it were in the condition of the houses that sold previously. Yeah, so they should be um, knowledgeable enough to give that. They just, when you throw terms at them, they're just like, I, yeah. I don't know what that is. So. Um, a real estate agent who understands how to estimate rehab costs. Um, most real estate agents don't know how to do that. Uh, I will tell you from, from experience after doing, so I did three flips with partners, and I did uh, three solo flips in the last, three years um, and after each one I learned a little bit um, and then I, I managed to get it down to where I can basically walk into a property now and I can say this rehab is going to be about this amount just off the top of my head. Um, being able to do that uh, is, is important. Not necessarily off the top of your head but at least understanding how to come up with those numbers. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you want to be able to walk into a property and kind of break it down like, oh, I'm in a bedroom. What, what am I going to get done in here? I mean, really, the, the big value is obviously looking in the kitchen, master bedroom, your bathrooms. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff just going to be yeah. based off square footage, depending on what uh, you're doing. The ability to understand that those HGTV fix and flip shows don't tell you everything. Like, yeah. you know, they say, I bought the house for $100,000 and put $20,000 into it and I sold it for $300,000. I made this much money. But no, you didn't because you paid closing costs when you bought, you paid closing costs when you sold, you paid holding costs. Um, you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of them that will say Some what the holding do, costs yeah. are, but not. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first started investing, that's kind of, I watched the Carlton Sheets infomercial and I bought his program and I said, I want to be a real estate investor and I jumped in with both feet. <laughs> and it, it wasn't what it turned out to be you know I, I, I think I did well because I bought a house to live in and I house hacked it even though I didn't know what house hacking was uh, but at the same time there are many many wannabe investors out there who don't they don't take that little bit of motivation they get from those things like HGTV and you know infomercials and actually do some research and bigger pockets I'll tell you what I've learned so much just from that website alone. Uh, in fact, most of my most of my good real estate books, the ones that I actually keep on my shelf, are from Bigger Pockets. Um, nice. You know, like like I was saying, I read probably I probably read about 120 books during that 15 year sabbatical, um, and out of that 120, maybe five of them were actually value add. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on where you uh, where you get a book and where your mindset is at that time to if that book's going to yeah. add value to to you or not. I mean, you could take a great book like uh, Joe Fairless's um, best ever book that he talks about syndications, but if you're a new beginner, that book's going to really add no value yeah. to you. Um, whereas, you know, like me, when I was a beginner, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, which obviously added a ton of value to me because. It didn't really teach me a ton about investing in real estate, but it was more that mindset shift that 
you hear a lot of investors talk about when they when they reference it that. It alters your relationship with money. That's that's the way I that's what I get out of it. It altered my relationship with money. Yeah, and it, I mean honestly, I don't even know if that's his best book, but that was definitely one that it it gets you in the right mindset. It kind of you know makes your your mind malleable to the to the change of how you have to look yeah. at things. And you know you may not necessarily a hundred percent agree with everything in the book, but it's really about finding the right book at the right stage of your real estate investment you know development and so that's i think that's that's a key point to uh knowledge you know books and how you approach what you're looking to Absolutely. do mm -hmm. so uh what what do you where do you see yourself in the next year um so in the next year well so i'm i'm working my way toward um so i you follow Gary Vaynerchuk, right? So yep. have you seen his thing about become the, the digital mayor of your town? So yep. I'm kind of working toward that direction. Uh, I've actually been selected to be the host of American Dream TV. Uh, and it's a show that started in San Diego. And it's a lifestyle, culture, and real estate show. Not like HGTV, no reality junk. It's, you know... <laughs> real estate professionals, whether they're agents or lenders or whatever, talking about the culture and lifestyle of the town that they're in um, and just highlighting all of the good things about where they live and where they work. Um, and then nice. that show has progressed from just just San Diego to now it's nationwide and it has their, their shows in all different kinds of markets all across the United States. That's awesome. And they, they decided to come to the Hampton Roads area, and I was one of the agents they contacted. Um, and I actually just shot my first show last week, and looking forward to getting that out on the airwaves. Yeah, let me know, and I'll, I'll be happy to yeah. check it out and kind of. So uh, that's kind of what I'm doing next is you know doing everything I can to become known as hey you know that. Chris Kaiser guy knows a lot about Norfolk. Maybe we should talk to him. <laughs> yeah. That's probably a good place to be as a yeah. real estate agent. How, where do you see yourself in five years? So my, my whole real estate investing career, I've had this big brained idea of having, you know, starting out with a couple of rental properties um, and then eventually expanding into expanding into property management which I've since decided against because there are great property managers out there there are good property managers out there that I would much rather pay to do that job than me um, so that one's off the table but expanding into my own brokerage eventually uh, which actually a colleague of mine uh, recently did he moved to the triad area of North Carolina and opened his own brokerage it's a franchise brokerage of ours but it's his own um, and he's the broker in charge there so expanding into that and then eventually moving into potentially getting into um, lending private lending so I've done a lot of research on private lending I'm actually part uh, part of a private lending group um, with Alex Brashears. I was actually one of the founding members of that group um, and uh, moving into that realm as well. So 
kind of an all-around real estate everything, you know, real estate agency, real estate brokerage, real estate uh, lending, um, you know, the whole shebang. That's that's always been my big brain thing is to have that whole all-encompassing piece. Yeah, I mean, you you got to have the big goals in order to achieve big yeah, things, absolutely. right? And then eventually moving right, into well, more I... limited partner, hands-off style investing, which is why, why <laughs> yeah. I have you guys. Going real <laughs> passive. Yes. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today. How can uh, our guests get in touch with you? Touch with you if you uh, uh, if they're interested in your services or just learning more about. So the easiest way is to go on Google and type in Chris Kaiser. It's K R I S K Y Z A R, and I'm all over that. Uh, both my real estate agency stuff and my uh, investment as well. So they can look me up there. I'm on HomeSnap. I'm on. Zillow, I'm on Google business page, I'm on Bigger Pockets, um, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. <laughs> you can Everywhere. find them anywhere. All right. Well, sounds like you got big things coming ahead of you, Chris. Uh, again, thank you for coming on and joining us. Uh, on I this appreciate episode. you having me.